We begin our uh, next in our resurrection series, and so if you'd be so kind to stand with me as Ron Moss will read John 11, 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in cloth. Jesus said to them, Unwrap him and let him go. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of the word. You may be seated. Thank you for honoring the word that way. You've heard it. Come here. One form or another, we've heard that and saw that little message. Come here. I don't know, maybe you have a childhood memory of your mom saying something of that nature, probably in a stern voice when you had done something a little erratic. Come here. <laughs> or maybe it could have been your friends you were playing around with and they found something very exciting and said, come here, come here, come look at this. I don't know. Most of you, I'm going to say, knows how I said that, most of you, probably remember around the fifth grade the story of Alexander Graham Bell. You know, his first successful experiment on the telephone was March 10th, 1876, some 148 years ago next Sunday. When he used his phone, he called his assistance with these famous words, Mr. Watson, come here, I want to see you. And just about 2,000 years ago, we just read the story of Jesus calling Lazarus, not from another room, but from the other side of eternity. Lazarus, come here, I want to see you. John, in his gospel, notes that Jesus did many other signs not listed in this book, and if he were to write in detail all that Jesus did, he says, even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. From this side of eternity, we get a glimpse of God, and it is awesome. The gospel themselves only note on three occasions where people were raised from the dead by Jesus. Jairus' daughter in Mark 15 the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7, and this story found only in the Gospel of John about Lazarus. In many respects, this event foreshadows his own death and resurrection. There is a death, there is a cave, there's a stone in front. There are days after death, a stone rolled away, and then resurrection with a live body, a body that many see, a body that participates in everyday activity. But we're moving too fast. Let's go back to the early part of the story, a part that wasn't read this morning. It comes from verses 1 and 2. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. 
Now, a couple things to notice about this passage. Even though Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem, Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem. He was across the Jordan some 20 miles away. So what does that mean? Well, based on Mary's later comment that he'd been dead four days, that means that Lazarus was already dead when the messenger showed up to tell Jesus that he was sick. A fact that Jesus already knew, as he clearly tells his disciples in verse 15, Lazarus is dead. Here again is one of those small details that John mentions given evidence of the divine nature of Jesus. He knew without being told. Isaiah tells us, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Isn't Jesus amazing? We face questions and doubts, concerns and fears, and even before we can put it in our thoughts into a prayer, he already knows and knows how he's going to respond. Also note how the request is non-direct. They simply, they simply have him inform Jesus that Lazarus is ill. Doesn't ask for anything, just says, Let, tell Jesus Lazarus is ill. It kind of reminds me of the wedding feast in Cana where Mary, his mother, says, they have no wine. Now, I, I'll be honest, in, in my world, if you tell me you have no wine, I have no sympathy. Okay, that's where you are. But that's me. Jesus has an interesting response. He says, my hour has not yet come. It's like many passages in John where someone says something and Jesus' response seems like, how in the world are these two things connected? It's hard to figure out. I would simply point out that according to Jewish tradition, it was the bridegroom's job to provide the feast and to provide the wine. That was the bridegroom's job. And so he had done that, but he was running out and they were out. So when Jesus takes the role of providing wine for the feast, he becomes the bridegroom. Now you say, well, that's interesting, but what does that mean? Well, I want to take you back to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 points out that at the age of salvation, there will be a sacrificial, sacrificial feast, a feast of fine wine. Jesus, by taking role of the bridegroom at the wedding feast of Cana, is making a statement about who he is. He is God. So in our passage, Mary and Martha make no request, but trust Jesus will do what is best for them. Which makes me wonder, can we do that? Are we able to look at any point and every point in our journey and trust God, that God will do what is best? So there is this hint at the divine, but there's also the story of the man Jesus. We affirm that Jesus is both God and man, and John provides us pictures of both. Here it is mentioned that Jesus loves Lazarus. And a couple of verses later, he loved Mary and Martha. This was a special relationship. Jesus had friends that he loved deeply, even to the point of weeping. So what is the central truth of our lives in Christ? What is our calling? Love God. Love each other. Another item to note in the larger passage is the issue of communication. You remember the old saying. If you're like me, I don't remember the old saying, so I wrote it down. 
I know that you believe you understood what you think I said, but I am not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. Amen, brother. Kind of like the man who went to the doctor and he gained some weight he wasn't supposed to. And the doctor says, well, what about that exercise we talked about? And the man says, exercise? I thought you said extra fries. <laughs> so they're in this passage. This is a change of things that they miss. It starts in verse 7 where Jesus says, let's go to Judea. In verse 8, the disciples remind him the Jews in Judea are trying to stone you. So this is probably not a good idea. Jesus, in part, responds in verse 11 that Lazarus has fallen asleep, and to which they reply, well, okay, he'll get over it. And then he says, plainly, Lazarus is dead. Let's go to him. Now, step aside for the passage for just a second, and I want you to think like a good Jewish kid. You're following Jesus. What do you know? Well, you know the Tanaka. That's a fun word to say. It sounds Indian. It's not. It's a word made up of three other words. When you know it. Torah, meaning the first five books of the Bible. The Nevim, the prophets. And the Ketuvim, which are the writings. That means if you are familiar with your text, you're familiar with the stories of the text. And one of the stories in the text comes from what we call... 2 Samuel 12, where David's firstborn son, my Bathsheba, is sick and ill, and David is praying fervently, he's fasting, he's pleading for the child's life, but the child dies. And after he does, he cleans up and he asks for a meal. And they try to figure out what happened here, and David's answer is simple. Can I bring him back again? With the implied answer, no. But he states the reality of the situation. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And I think it's within that historical context, they hear Jesus. Lazarus is dead. I'm going to him. I'm going down to Judea and die. And that is why Thomas says, let's go die with him. Now, mind you, that isn't what Jesus said. But that's what they thought. I applaud what appears to be the deep commitment shared. And in Thomas's heart, I believe he meant it. But we also know on the night they were, where Jesus was betrayed, they scattered like sheep in the face of the wolves. I think what I'm hoping you will hear is how hard communication really is. The inability to understand each other causes deep misunderstandings, divisions, anger, and sometimes wars. Secondly, I want us to understand another truism. After all is said and done, more is said than done. When we say we, what we will do and what we will do in the moment when temptation snares our desires, fear grips our souls, anger wraps its tentacles around our hearts and minds, is often very different. Perhaps that is why Paul makes his admonition to the church at Corinth, and he says, Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. And that is why there's grace. Here in this passage is, is hidden the mystery of God. And it stays a mystery. You hear it in the words of the mourners. Could not this man who opened the eyes of him who is blind kept this man from dying? 
You hear it in anguish cry of Mary. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. You hear it in the voice of Martha as she assures Jesus she believes in the resurrection in the last day, just not today. It seems a mystery to us that God is never where we think God should be, doing what we think God should do in ways that we think God ought to do it at a time when we think it should happen. And when that happens, we limit God. And that is why I think people have a hard time believing in God. We try and make God like us. If you've read history, you know that various countries, nations, civilizations have made gods and they always look like themselves. Maybe bigger, more powerful, but they're just like humans, petty, and all that comes with it. The rising, raising of Lazarus is a sign to all to demonstrate Jesus' true identity. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And that mystery is still with us. So let us take a few minutes and note some things about the passage that Ron read this morning. Jesus comes to the tomb and commands them to remove the stone. Now, if you've been tracking, anytime you do something that the rabbis don't think you should do, this is a bad thing. And there is definitely rabbinic traditions forbidding for graves to be uncovered because you risked being defiled. We noticed that last week when we looked at the gathering demoniac. There was a risk of defilement, but notice they obeyed him. They still opened the grave. Makes me wonder how far we would go to obey Jesus. Are there human traditions that we would be willing to stand against to obey him? Are there actions of service that others would look on us as unacceptable for a Christian to practice because we are seeking to obey him? What limits us in following our master? Then standing there is Martha, who brings up a very practical point. It's a matter of odor. It's been four days. The body starts to break down. It doesn't smell good. There's a sense of abhorrence in that thought, which makes me wonder what else is rushing through Martha's head. I don't know if I, if I was in that position. I might be thinking along the lines, why would you do that? And if you open it up and I smell it, that's not how I want to remember my brother. Then again, we may be looking at another traditional understanding that we're generally not aware of. It was believed in that culture that the spirit of a person hovered over their dead body for three days. And on the fourth day would leave. The, this, the spirit would hover there trying to get back in, but when it couldn't, it left. It's been four days. So if you follow that tradition, basically it's too late to do a miracle because the spirit is gone. Wow. That's a loaded idea. We function on what we think God can and cannot do. And those thoughts often limit our faith and in turn how we live out that faith in the world. If we are to learn anything from Bible reading, it should be at least this. We do not control God. And if God be for us, who can stand against us? And we finally get to those words. 
Lazarus is dead. The stone is moved. And in my vernacular, he speaks to his friend and says, Lazarus, come here. Maximus, the confessor, once said, had he not called him by name, the great power of Jesus would have summoned all those in the graves. Maybe so. But out he shuffles. Lazarus from the grave. Wouldn't that have been a sight to see? Then he says, and bind him and let him go. Lazarus has a new life. So maybe we can learn about three things here. One, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Two, God will do what God does in the way that God wants to do it. Our job is to trust God and be faithful as best we are able. And thirdly, you can't really read this story and not see in it a shadow of what is taught for the rest of the New Testament. We are dead in sin, says Paul. There are things that bind us and hold us in the tight grip of sin. It could be fear. It could be doubt. It could be anger, unforgiveness, wrongful thoughts or behaviors. We are not being the person that God had intended us to be. We are, in fact, marring the image of God in us. It is a cold, dark, forbidding feeling to be dead all the while breathing the air, feeling the sunshine, walking. But we're still dead, people walking. And then our friend looks beyond our faults, sees our needs, our friend who understands our troubles, our hearts, who has walked the same dusty path we have walked and faced the unkindness of the world locked in the padlock of Satan's daily horror. And our friend says, come here. Let's take off those things that bind you. Let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles us, says the Hebrew writer. Let us run with perseverance the race smart before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And like those who heard the words of the Master on that beautiful day when life was given to the dead, let him go. We are going to walk out of this building in just a few minutes, alive in Christ, to go back home to family, friends, community, and we get to live a life worthy of the gospel. That gospel that our hearts and our minds have experienced. A life lived by faith for one who looked into our tear-stained eyes and bid us new life. But I hope you know that you will hear those words. We are told on the great judgment day, as God separates the sheep from the goats, he will look at the sheep. He will call them by name. Al, Sherry, J.R., Bill, Pat, your name. And he'll say, come here. You're free. Go and live. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the new beginning you provide us every moment. We are filled with praise and thanksgiving for the love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness you give. Even when we fail, you are there waiting to pick us up and guide us back to the path. You have done it for us all. You lift your hand and beckon us back to the fellowship with your heart with two simple words. Come here. We will praise you in the storm. 
And we will praise you in joy. In Jesus' name, amen.